Well, this morning we continue a, a series of discovery as we look back at what is important to God as we return from a time of separation. We've all been in our homes for a long time. Judah returned to the land. They'd been there a couple of hundred years, and uh, a couple hundred maybe. And they get to hear one last message from God before he goes silent for 400 years, and the next prophet on the scene is John the Baptist. So far, Malachi has raised some questions to consider in, in these broad areas. Do we treat God as God? Do we obey his word? Do we obey his commands? Like not picking and choosing which commands, but all of them. And then is God at the center of your home? The most intimate of our relationships should be with people who are within the faith. He cares that you remain faithful to your spouse. This morning, Malachi takes another turn. He asks this question. Do we seek justice? Do we seek justice? Do you have your sermon notes? There's digital ones through the phone. There's some on the tables in the back if you need one. Uh, someone will bring you one, I'm sure. Uh, or just go get it yourself. We're in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. Let's read the text. Malachi 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of, God, of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And, offering, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. As in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. What an interesting text. Notice how it opens back in verse 17. You've worried the Lord with your words. Basically, they had changed their minds about the God of justice. They're like, ah, it's not really just. And notice how it ends in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 6. It ends with, the people have changed their views of God, but God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed at all. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, Israel's faith through times of ups and downs should have been stable because God had promised them to be with them, to care for them. And yet their hope and their faith are rattling a bit. They were talking as if they had no God to believe in. 
They have no God to trust. But for now, the God who doesn't change or grow weary, he's been very clear about that, is now said to be wearied with his people's faithless and helpless words. They are again oblivious to their sin as they've been throughout Malachi. You have wearied, verse 17, the Lord with your words. Oh, how have we wearied him? They've concluded that God has to be unjust because they look at people who are wicked and they're prospering. Verse 17, by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Or you say, where is the God of justice? In other words, the wealthy are evil and yet they're blessed by God. How does that work? So something's wrong with God. He's unjust. Give them some credit. They lived in an era in which God promised material blessing on Israel if they obeyed. Deuteronomy 28, it's very clear. So if, if you obey, I will bless. So they took the opposite. If, if we see blessing, then they must be obeying. But these promises are intended for the entire nation. And in a society that's filled with righteous and unrighteous people, and there's a mix, it's confusing to draw the conclusion in an individual case. Just because you're being blessed does not necessarily mean you're being obedient. Add to that fact that God in his providence, he says it in the New Testament clearly, you know, he blesses the wicked too, you know. The rain fall on the just and the unjust. And add in the truth that the righteous as well as the wicked will suffer just because we live on a fallen planet. And then consider the suffering of Job as he has dealt, you know, God's dealing with Satan and, and Job is, is facing the brunt. It all makes it very complicated to explain why a righteous person suffers and a wicked person prospers. Why do the wicked prosper? The, the, the Old Testament talks about that on several occasions. And every time it does, the writer says to do what? Ah, look at the long game. Judgment is coming. There's a time that it's going to sift all out. And God will establish his kingdom in righteousness and punish the wicked. But in Malachi's day, they didn't learn to have that kind of hope from the scriptures. They questioned God's justice by saying he delights in evil people. And they asked, so where is the God of justice? And what's Malachi's response? Malachi's response is, eh, you know, I will send my messenger. We looked at this passage, chapter 3, the first couple of verses, as we ended the sermon last Sunday. But he says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire. But who can endure that day? In other words, you're not really going to be ready for that time. And suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come. And who can stand when he appears? He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He's going to purify things. Verse 4, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable as in the days gone by, as in the former years. Verse 5, this is what they really like. So I will put you on trial. <laughs> You're putting me on trial because I'm not just, when I come back, I will put you on trial. And so they had put God himself 
on trial. And he says, when I intervene, you will be on trial. And God will come. And when he does, he will purge the evil out of the nation. But Israel will not be destroyed. Why not? Because God doesn't change. And he made the promise to maintain to his people that, that he, he, verse 6, the Lord does not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. He promised not to destroy them. His judgment will not bring about the end of Israel. But what's interesting to us this morning, to me at least, is what are they doing to bring about the anger of God into their lives? Why are they, they facing God's judgment? He gets very specific in verse 5. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. What does God care about? God cares about justice. Talk about a hot-button contemporary issue. It is justice. And so we're going to explore justice for the next couple of Sundays. Biblical justice. One of the fundamental characteristics that sets human beings apart from other creatures is our craving for justice. I mean, why is it that animals can kill their own they can abandon their children, and we consider it natural. And human beings are held to a much different standard. Turns out the Bible has a very interesting take on that. In Genesis, we see that humans were created to be the representatives of God on earth. We were made in the image of God. Therefore, we have to abide by his morals and concepts of justice that he displays and teaches. We don't always behave with justice and fairness. So let's dive a little deeper into this concept of justice in the Old Testament and the New. We're going to start this morning. What are the two terms for justice? Two big terms for justice. You're going to learn some Hebrew this morning, and now you're excited. I can tell. Woohoo! There are basically two words for justice in, in Hebrew. Number one is mishpat. Mishpat, over 200 times in its various forms in the Old Testament. Its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. It means that we have to acquit somebody or punish somebody on the merits of the case, regardless of their social status, regardless of who they are. Anyone who does the same thing should be given the same penalty. But it's more than just the punishment of wrong. It also means giving people their rights. Deuteronomy 18 says that the priests of the tabernacle should be, should be supported by a certain percentage of the gifts that come into the tabernacle, a certain percentage of, of people's incomes. And that support is described as the priests' mishpat, their justice. It's their due or it's their right. So mishpat means giving people what they're due whether it's good or bad. The second word is tzadikah. I don't probably say it very well. My Hebrew's not fantastic. Tzadikah, okay? That's righteousness. 
It's the second word. It's often used with mitzvah. They always go together, justice and righteousness. It means being just. It's usually translated, however, being righteous. And it refers to living life in right relationships. Okay? When we think of the word righteousness, we think of, of priv our private morality or, or sexual purity or, or being diligent in prayer and Bible study. That's righteousness. But in the Bible, it really does refer to everyday living as you're living out your relationships. And when a person conducts relationships in their family and in the society with fairness and generosity, that's righteousness. These words occur together 36 times in the Old Testament. So that's kind of the concept. How big of a deal is it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament? How big a deal is justice in the Bible? Does God really care all that much, or is this just kind of Malachi throwing this out? When he looks down and sees our world, does God really care what's going on? And if he does, does he have anything to say about it? If you want to know the answer to that question, all you have to do is pick up your Bible and start reading it, by the way. You'll find that the Bible is crammed with verses and stories and texts where God expresses his concern for justice. It's a major theme in the Old Testament. I'm going to read some of those to you, and we're going to take some time to do that. The point of this, you can follow along if you want to. Most of them will be on the screen. The point of this, shall I just be honest with you, is shock and awe. You want to hear God's heart for justice? Here it is. Listen to the scripture. Amos 5.24, let justice roll down like a river and righteousness, those two words together, like a never-failing stream. Micah 6.8, what does the Lord your God require of you? What does he want? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Exodus 23, first nine verses, gives us the laws of justice and mercy. He says this is what it involves. It involves no false reports. It means you don't follow the crowd. It means there's no favoritism in the law. It means you give true testimony. You show kindness to your enemy. You show justice to the poor. No false charges. No capital punishment for the innocent. Don't take bribes. You treat foreigners fairly. Deuteronomy 10, 17 speaks of God's just character. It says God doesn't show any partiality. And the Lord doesn't accept any bribes. None. Deuteronomy 10, 18, justice is seen in, in widows and in orphans and in the way you, you have food and clothes for foreigners. Deuteronomy 16, 20, follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Deuteronomy 24, four statements about what justice is. It is justice to the aliens. It is justice to, to the widows. It is justice to the poor. It is generosity to everybody. See, God was very specific about how society was supposed to be organized. He doesn't just go out and say, you know, you should just go love one another. He gives specific directions on what does that look like? What, is that, what does that look like in a culture and in a society? And God was concerned that when the people went to live in the land, they're not living there yet in Deuteronomy, but when they get there that they would set up a society that was quantitatively different from the heathen nations around them. It was to be a land that, that the, in place of injustice and bloodshed, there would be justice and, and love and mercy. 
And Solomon says, he comes on the scene and he says, you know, what I really need, God says, ask me anything. And he asks for administ- a, 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 a sense of justice, discernment in administering justice. And God says, that's what I'm looking for. I want to know how to distinguish right from wrong. So Solomon asks for a spirit of justice. And God gave him riches and honor as well. Job 34, it is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Psalm 33, 5, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. Those two words again. Psalm 82 gives us four signs of justice. You want to know what it looks like? You defend the weak and the fatherless. You maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. You rescue the weak and the needy. And you deliver the weak from the hand of the wicked. Do you sense a pattern developing? Certain things are coming up over and over again. God keeps bringing up certain groups that he wants to see experience justice. Psalm 97, 2. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 106, 3. Blessed are they who maintain justice, who consistently do what is right. Psalm 140, verse 12. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. For the sake of time... I won't go to Proverbs. There's nine of them at least in there. Isaiah 1, learn to be right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Isaiah 5, 7, he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. God looks at L.A. and what does he see? Isaiah 30, verse 18, the Lord is a God of justice. Isaiah 42, he will bring justice to the nations. Isaiah 61, I, the Lord, love justice. Jeremiah 21, administer justice every morning. Rescue the land of his oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Jeremiah 22, 3, this is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless or widow, and do not shed innocent blood in his place. Ezekiel 18 lists the marks of someone who does justice. He doesn't oppress anyone. He returns the collateral for a loan. He doesn't keep it. He doesn't rob. He gives food to the hungry. He gives clothes to the naked. He doesn't charge interest. He judges thoroughly between men. Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-nine: the people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the alien, denying them justice. Thus judgment comes from the Lord. Amos 5, verse 7, lists the sins of Israel. They trampled the poor, they took bribes, and they took grain from the poor. I'm almost done. Zechariah 7, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. If your hearts do not think evil of each other, in your hearts do not think evil of each other. You got to go to Malachi. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me. So it's just an Old Testament thing. James 1, 27. Religion that our God accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. As Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, what did he say to them? The most religious people of their day. You hypocrites. 
you whitened sepulchers. It's a tomb. You are the ones who rob the widows' houses in the name of religion. You cheat the poor. You cheat the oppressed. In the name of your religion, you trample on the rights of other people. No wonder he came to the temple that day and was angry. Justice is throughout the pages of the scripture. Hopefully by now, you have realized this is an inductive sermon, which means I haven't given point number one yet. But I think you know what point number one is, I hope. Point number one, it's probably written there, isn't it? I don't think I left a blank there. Point number one is this, we should be all over justice. We should be all over it. It appears throughout the Bible from the beginning to the end, and our God is a God of justice. I think he has made that clear. This is not a left-wing sermon. This is the Bible. And maybe the church has needed to grow up and listen to the whole counsel of God. God's concern about justice on earth has been there all along. God is very much concerned about justice. The way I look at it, the way our culture looks at it. Therefore, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks exploring biblical justice. Some of you are very nervous right now. Others are very excited right now. But probably you're all going to be disappointed at one point or another. Because my goal is that I might accurately reflect a biblical perspective on justice. I am no expert. I'm, I'm barely a theologian. But I'm not a political scientist. But there is a massive social movement shaking the core of our nations. And two questions I think we need to keep in mind over the next few weeks. Number one, can we discuss these issues with grace? Can you cut me some slack and I'll cut you some slack? You really need to listen to all the messages. There should be three, but we'll see. And number two, can we maintain a biblical worldview and still be concerned about justice? We better be able to. And I promise I will do my best to theologically evaluate the modern movements so that we understand what's going on around us. For example, the Bible says all people are children of God, made in his divine image. That's the foundation for getting along. The modern movement begins with a very from a very different place. We're all just children of our society, fashioned by these social constructs and power dynamics, and you've got to think about all that. No, we've been made in the image of God. So we love one another. But this morning, I just want to shout loud and clear, we should be all over justice. And I don't think we can agree with the starting point. Not yet. Which leads me to point number two. What character qualities does God say are important as we consider justice? What, what, in what realms do we see justice lived? Well, we know he remembers the widows. He remembers the orphans. He remembers the poor. He remembers the foreigners. You cannot read the Old Testament without seeing that God cares what happens to these four groups of people. And when I say widows, you got to think single parents. When, I, when, 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 I, when you see orphans, you, you got to think foster kids. When you see the poor, you have to think homeless as well. They're pretty poor. 
when you think foreigners, you got to think ethnic and racial minorities. You see, God's word is very relevant in our world. And God sees the displaced peoples all over the world. He sees the refugees of the world. He sees the homeless and the hurting of the world, and he cares about them. And he wants us to care about them too. But what are the character qualities God really values when it comes to justice? I think there's four things. Number one, fair play. God really wants us to deal with fair play. Remember the verses they often talk about the scales and making sure, you know, we don't have our thumb on the scale. The old story of the, you go to the butcher and you weigh out, he weighs out, you want two pounds of beef. And he kind of has his finger on the scale and you don't really know it until you get home and you weigh your beef and you got a pound and a half. He's rigged it. God says, don't rig anything. Play fair. Truth in selling. Truth in merchandising. Truth in advertising. Play fair. No favoritisms. No strings attached. No secret bribes. Don't do anything under the table. Everything is open and above board. That's what God wants. Fair play. Number two, fair pay. He talks about robbing widows' homes, about extorting money from the poor. How about some of those people, not all of them, but those rich people, they'll go buy an apartment downtown. They never even go there, and they just start renting it out. They never fix anything. They never make any repairs, but they get their money every month. That's an abomination to God. We ought to care about that. Those people living in, in filth because the landlord won't do anything about it. And if you want to know why it's so hard to bring some of these neighborhoods back, it's because people who own the buildings, they never even go to the neighborhood. They get their monthly check and take it to the bank. I think God hates that. Fair pay means not getting rich at the expense of other people. Number three, absolute honesty. Truth in speech. Keep your promises. What you say you're going to do, you do it. Fourth, compassion toward the needy. Proverbs 24, rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he's done? If you see someone suffering, you know, you're really supposed to do something about it. You can't do everything, but you should do something. It was March 13, 1964, the streets of New York City. It was late at night, but not that late. Her name was Kitty Genovese. After dark, not past midnight, I don't think, she was assaulted by a man, and she started to scream. And she kept on screaming and screaming for about 15 minutes until he dragged her off to the side and killed her for what money she had. And the police began their investigation. They asked the neighbors in the apartment houses, well, did you hear anything? It turned out 36 people heard her screaming. Some of them even opened the window and shouted out, be quiet, I'm trying to sleep. When they asked if they knew what was happening and why they didn't do something, the common response was, we just don't want to get involved. You want to know what's wrong with America today? That's part of it, if not a lot of it. 
Because God says when you see the hurt and the needy, you have to do something. You cannot just walk by and pretend you didn't see it. Because God makes his judgment not on the basis of what you thought, not on the basis of what you said, not on the basis of how you felt, but on the basis of what you did. Good intentions don't count. That's why we help and support at Christmas time the foster children and do Samaritan's Purse. It's why we send a medical team to Uganda once a year to help meet the medical needs. It's why we, we built a water well to a place we'd never even been up in northern Uganda. It's why we, we, we purchased 272,000 meals for refugees on the Thai-Burma border several years ago. It's why we, we raised funds at, at, at Christmas a couple years ago for rice for the Laos Christians and, and helped them rebuild from, was it was an earthquake? A flood. It's why, it's why we support an orphanage in Guatemala. It's why we care about things like abortion. Justice matters to God, so therefore it ought to matter to us. John Perkins was born on a Mississippi plantation in 1930, a cotton plantation. His mother died when he was seven months old of, of um, nutrition deficiency. His big brother, a World War II vet, was killed, shot by a, a town marshal, a cop, when John was 17. So John began to fight for civil rights, and he was jailed and beaten by the police for it. He had a fork stuck up his nose and down his mouth. He was forced to mop up his own blood in the jail. He has known injustice. And he says that responding in hate would have been very easy. But in his own words, he could have answered that hate with hate, but God had a different plan for him. He trusted Christ as his Savior and saved was saved by the amazing grace of God. He spent the rest of his life, he's still alive, pouring into the causes of civil rights, multi-ethnic re reconciliation, community development, building good relationships between urban communities and the police. After 60 years of working for justice, he offers us four admonitions for the next generation of people seeking justice. Now, this is not on your sermon notes. I changed it all. Forget it. You're not going to get those blanks. I don't even know what they are anymore. But I'm going to answer and ask this question. What are these admonitions that John Perkins makes to this generation? There are four things he says. Number one, start with God. God is bigger than we can imagine. We must align ourselves with his purpose, his will, his mission to let justice roll down and bring forgiveness. This is a God-sized problem. So if we don't start with God, whatever we're seeking, it ain't justice. Number two, be one in Christ. Christian brothers and sisters, black, brown, white, rich, poor, we are family. We are one blood. We've been adopted by one father, saved by the same son, and filled with the same Holy Spirit. And in John 17, Jesus prays for everyone who would believe in him. 
from every nation, tongue, tribe, that we would be one. If we give any foothold to the kind of tribalism that could tear down that unity, then we are not bringing God's justice to this world. Number three, you got to preach the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ and his incarnation, his perfect life, his death as our substitute, his triumph over death and sin is good news for everyone. It is multicultural good news. And in the blood of Jesus Christ, we're able truly to see ourselves as one race, one blood. And we need to stop playing the race game. Christ alone can break down the barriers of prejudice and hate that we all struggle with. There is no greater power than God's love expressed in Jesus Christ. That is where we find true human dignity. If we replace the gospel with this or that man-made political agenda, then we ain't doing biblical justice. Number four, teach truth. Without truth, there can be no justice. And what is the ultimate standard of truth? It's not how we feel. It's not the popular opinion of this day. It's not what any president says or any politician. God's word is the standard for truth. And if we're trying harder to align our opinions with the popular opinions of our day than we are with the Bible, then we ain't doing biblical justice. We are in the middle of a great social upheaval. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of anger, and a lot of injustice in our world. But there are some Christians who are trying to fight this with man-made solutions. And these solutions promise justice, but they deliver division and idolatry. And they become a false gospel. Thankfully, in these trying times, conversations are beginning to happen. And we need to ask the right questions. We've got to risk changing our own thinking and our own heart and dare to reach across the divides of our day, to venture beyond anger and hurt into grace and forgiveness and not get swept up with false answers that lead to only more injustice. Love one another. Confront injustice without compromising truth. Healing, unifying biblical truth. Can you do that? Well, that's our goal. So that we can look forward to the day when justice will roll down like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Let's pray. Father, if we're going to shine as a beacon of light and truth and hope, we need to make sure that we're, we're welded to the message of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. We need to begin with you. We need, as a church body, to be one in Christ. We need to preach the gospel and teach the truth with a heart of compassion 
You came to serve compassion, care for the hurting, and to give your life as a ransom for many. That's what we need to do. Change our hearts. That when you return, you don't need to burn up and, and get rid of the dross. We will have purified ourselves for the day when we see you face to face. In Jesus' name.